gentlemen, Gareth Edwards. <laughs> Just when you think Darth Vader couldn't get any badder or cooler, you make him badder and cooler. I just think that whole section, that reveal, is just an awe-inspiring moment of cinema. That, that was the last thing we filmed on the whole thing. It was, we shot the movie, and then we cut it, and then there was like this pickup shoot thing, and then at the very last thing of the pickup shoot was that scene. And uh, it was actually, the film, the film ended with Darth Vader coming, kind of seeing the, the blockade runner you know, get released and go. And, and it was uh, my editor, Jabez Olson, he was with Kathy Kennedy showing her something at one point. And he'd, been, he'd told me this, and he was itching to try and get it to happen. And he said, I really think there should be one last moment with Vader inside, you know, like you know, he should get on board the ship or something. And she said, that's a really good idea. And so then suddenly we were allowed, you know, we got given the opportunity and some money to go do this. And so, all his agents, yeah. if he was available. Yeah. He had, there was some scheduling conflicts. <laughs> he had to come from space. Yeah. It was tricky. Um, it's very expensive. He wants to only fly first class. I know, um, I know. And you never hear him. He's friends with you on set and then he doesn't call. I know. But, um, but, but with that, did you know exactly what you were going to do at that moment? I know I've just jumped almost to the to the. We're, to we're, the this juicy. ends after this. <laughs> yeah. This is the only reason people came. Yeah, long story. Yeah. Darth Vader, yeah. Darth Vader. Long, yeah. long story short, Darth Vader. But uh, we, we will go to the beginning. Um, but uh, that moment, did you know exactly that sequence? Because as a when you watched that film as a kid, I remember thinking Darth Vader was sort of scary, but he never did. Well, that, that's kind of the greatest hits of Darth Vader, isn't it? Like everything he's doing in there, is something you've seen him do at some point. And there was stuff proposed, because uh, what happens is like the, the stunt guys, they, they come up with stuff and everybody has a little go at it. And it felt like it was really just gonna be the things that we'd already established or had been established in the other movies. And it was funny because like when we were filming it, on, when you make a film, you really don't know what people are gonna like and what they're gonna hate. And you hope they're gonna like most of it. Um, and and genuinely filming that, there was no version where I thought, oh, this is like gonna be this thing that people sort of talk about. It just felt like another thing amongst everything else. But every time we would do stuff and we'd stop, and we became the most popular people in the world those few days because everyone wanted to visit the set and see Darth Vader. And you would look around and their look on their face, and they'd come up to you afterwards and go like, oh, I can't believe I saw that, I can't believe. And you're like, so what? And they were like, you know, Darth Vader and everything. You think, oh, okay, yeah, I guess, I guess it's cool. Because you just get used to it. And then and Peter, Peter Jackson, uh, Jabers, who was made it, he, he, he did The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and yeah. stuff like this. He was friends with Peter Jackson and he was over and we were like, oh, like emailing him saying, you should come visit and you're welcome whenever you want. And um, he couldn't make it, it was, his schedule was crazy. And then it was the last day of filming. I was like, this is our last chance. So I just, emailed him and said, Pete, we're shooting Vader in half an hour if you want to come. And he just got an email straight away saying, I'm on my way. <laughs> and straight in. He literally turned up, like, to me, I, like, it's weird because, you know, it's, you do get used to these things a little bit. It is very strange making a Star Wars film. But um, we, were, we were set up the shot and it was the one that's in there where it creeps over the, the shoulders of the rebels and it's darkness and he turns the lightsaber on. And that was in camera. Greg, who was the DOP, had it all set up. So we had one of those, you know, like you can buy in the shops, those lightsabers that turn on. 
it wasn't literally one of those, but it, it was like an LED thing that could do that. And then behind him, he was stood blocking a light so that as that turned on, it wouldn't illuminate the, the room and give him that nice silhouette. So this light that he was stood in, in front of turned on red, and we had to put some smoke in there so you could see his silhouette and stuff. And we were set up to do that shot just as Peter Jackson comes in, and it's all dark because we're about to say action, and he comes in and he's like, what, what are you filming? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. I remember like, shh. He goes, like, watch. And, we, and it was one of those moments that you can't repeat where it just did the shot and then it went, you know, and it was Vader and, and uh, it felt like, okay, I probably, at that specific moment, I have the best job in the world. Um, yeah. Because in our generation, it means so much. And uh, you've said quite often in interviews that a new hope is a source of inspiration for you. Yeah. Um, so taking you back to the beginning, uh, where you grew up, what's the name of the town you grew up in? I, uh, confession time, I was born in England. No, no, no. But, but my, all my family's Welsh, and we spent a lot of time in Wales when I was a kid and growing up. But, um, We've claimed you, anyway. Yeah. There's, been a, there's been a survey, everyone's claimed you. As I said earlier, you, you know, a dog can have puppies in an oven, doesn't make them biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're... You, you're the greatest Welsh person we know, and uh, we're, ha we're having you and not sharing you, so that's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but being, so what, what was the name of the local cinema? Um, it, they closed it down. When in, I'm from Nuneaton, this town in the Midlands, and there was, there was a cinema that was, I remember The Return of the Jedi being on there because it was originally called Revenge of the Jedi, mm -hmm. and I remember seeing that poster and then suddenly it became Return and I was confused. And... Uh, they turned it into a bingo hall. And really sadly, because I'm like, my, I'm, my, my, my mum goes to bingo when a lot, and my sister would. And so when I turned 18, most people go and get a pint with their dad. Um, I had to go to bingo with my mum. <laughs> and go, go to this, well, this place that used to, I'd only ever been to before to watch like, films like Star Wars and E.T. And now it was like, two fat ladies, 88. You know what I mean? It was like, this is not better. <laughs> like, film's way better than bingo. Why did we do this? But what was the first film you saw there uh, that made an impression? I remember the first film that I saw on my own, i.e. not with my parents. Like, we weren't, we had, we were unsupervised, and it was BMX Bandits. Nicole Kidman. Yeah. 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 And that was off the back of E.T., really, because everyone got excited about BMXs because of E.T., and then so someone made a film about it. And uh, I, I've never seen it since. I don't think it probably stands the test of time. I know. Can they still cycle down a water park slide? Yeah, there is that bit in it, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I spent, you know, video shops. <laughs> Did you have a video shop? Was that, where you, was that a haunt for you as, as, a, as a young guy? Um, I worked in one, which, when I was at film school, um, I ended up getting a job in a, in a video store, uh, which sounds great. Sounds like you should, you know, that means, okay, you get to watch all these amazing movies and, and, and learn from it, and I didn't do any of that. Um, you just get abuse asking people to return the videos. Yeah, and the funny ones were then, there was like a little adult section, and you'd have to ring up and say, um, and then the title would give away the fact it was adult. Amazing. <laughs> and the wife would answer the phone. Ah, and it was so difficult because you're going, uh, you've got a video that needs returning. And they would they'd yeah. be like, no, we haven't. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. Really, uh, yeah, you have. Is, the, is your husband there? <laughs> yeah. Shaving Ryan's privates. Have you got that in there? No. 
but it, so in terms of your film education, is that, because you said that and you, you don't remember ever watching A New Hope for the first time, you remember? I've never seen it. Um, it's like, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> I, it was just there, I was two. It was just always existed. Star Wars was just part of the world growing up as a two-year-old. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm really sad, I'm a really sad geek. And when I was, for my 30th, my girlfriend at the time said, what do you want to do? Do you want to have a party? And I said, no, I haven't got any friends. It's going to be really embarrassing. And, and so she said, well, let's go away somewhere. Where do you want to go? Is there anywhere you've never been that you'd like to go? And I was like, I've always wanted to go where they shot Star Wars. <laughs> and, and so we went to Tunisia. And, and on my 30th birthday, we stayed the night and slept in Luke Skywalker's house, which is the troglodyte, like, sunken pit with Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen. They weren't there, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were burnt to a crisp. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, Drinking out of big giant plastic cups. I took, yeah. <laughs> I took, okay, this is how, okay, I took some blue dye with me, so, and I bought some milk, and I put, I put the blue dye in the milk and, and drank blue milk, which for anyone who doesn't know Star Wars, that's what it's famous for. <laughs> Luke drinks blue milk, and I sat in the same spot and drank blue milk, and then spilt it, and it went all over the floor, and there's this big blue stain there now because, <laughs> because of me. Uh, yeah. I don't think that's sad. I think that's pretty cool, actually. And then what was, yeah, when, when then it was all said and done, my girlfriend said, well, that's the best thing ever. Like, how are you going to top, for your 40th, what are you going to do that's going to top visiting the Star Wars set? And it was through sheer fluke, on my 40th, we were filming Star Wars. And so it was like... <laughs> did I'm she, not, I'm did not she going, claim it? Did she claim it? No, I'm not going out with her anymore. <laughs> but I was like... I did call her up and go, you were wrong. <laughs> 40 is so the new 30. Yeah. So the idea of filmmaking, uh, we spoke to an extraordinary young filmmaker earlier on, a yeah. 13-year-old filmmaker. He's made 13 films and he's 13 years old. It's extraordinary. At what age did it sort of start come uh, as a, a passion, an ambition for you, a need to tell stories? Did it happen in performance first or did it happen in, in a relation to the... The films you were watching, or I don't, I don't. I mean, I just loved films, and uh, and I kind of. Okay, so another confession. Um, I my dad played rugby. Um, he played for Pontypool, and uh, I don't play rugby. I've never been interested in it, and I was a bit of a black sheep of the family because of it. And it was probably because I grew up in England, and football was the thing, and so me and my dad had not loads of things in common, you know, in terms of like sport and stuff, but he loved films. And so the times that I would probably spend the most time with him was on a Saturday when we would get a Betamax from the video shop and we'd watch this film and he'd usually explain why it was so good, you know, and he would say, okay, you have to understand when this came out, there'd never been a car chase in a movie and like it's bullet or whatever. And, 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 and we would watch these different films. And I, and I think that made me feel that filmmaking was this parentally approved career, you know, that you could have. It wasn't like a waste of time. And so I, I remember getting thrown out of class when I was 10 um, and, and, and spending the hour that I was not allowed inside uh, storyboarding. And so I must have known that, that there was something that called directing and that you create shots by, you know, storyboarding. It was rubbish. I never made the thing or anything, but it was... It, so I obviously wanted to make films then, but 
I didn't know how the hell you do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, there was no set path. The only thing I had as a kid was this the Steven Spielberg story, which was this book about how Steven Spielberg got his career. And it looked like he had made a short film, uh, gone to Hollywood and managed to show it to a producer, and they gave him a job directing television. It wasn't quite how it happened, but it, it sounded straightforward. And so it looked like film school was the way to go, make a short film. And, and I did all that and, and sent my VHS copies to, I literally did send them to Lucasfilm and, and Amblin, Spielberg's company, and things like this. Got all these rejection letters back saying it's shit. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then I was like, oh my god, I've wasted all my youth. I don't know what I'm going to do for a living, because I've always wanted to do this. And my flatmate at the time was studying this new thing uh, on the same course called computer animation. And it looked like it was the future of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And so I got into debt, and I bought a computer. And my dad said I can only live at home if I got a job. So I worked in Marks and Spencer stacking shelves at night and then learned software in the day. And my plan was spend six months learning this thing and spend the next six months making a film. And 10 years went by because um, I was just <laughs> shit at it. And it took forever to learn how to do this stuff. And, and, and again, I just thought, I've wasted my life. Like, why did I get into computers? It was pointless. And then I got very lucky in that um, it seemed like there was an opportunity where you were able, the thing holding you back from making a low-budget film, or it felt to me, the thing holding you back from making a low-budget film and, and, and it being a success was that it would look ch like cheap video. Um, like every, the only thing I could have shot on was like a camcorder. So I thought, okay, maybe we embrace this and, and do like, and I literally had a pitch that was uh, like a, a sci-fi in alien invasion film, but like Blair Witch. And it, I think I even wrote on the front, Blair Witch meets War of the Worlds or something like this. And, and thought, okay, this could work. And I started to send it or talk to people about it. Like a Jaws in space kind of moment. Yeah, yeah and, then, and then suddenly I got sent these links to this new film coming out called Cloverfield. And it was all camcordery and all like, and it, yeah. and it, and it just instantly killed it because it looked like, oh, you're just trying to copy Cloverfield. So I was like, oh, okay, I can't do that. And then um, these people were experimenting on the internet with sticking uh, SLR cameras, like film type camera lenses on the front of video cameras mm -hmm. so that video looked like film. And they looked amazing. Like these, these little shorts people were making looked fantastic. And I bought one um, and entered a 48 hour film challenge and Louis here somewhere that runs that, hey. <laughs> really? This one's in April. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and entered it and we were very lucky it won and, and and I took that with my visual effects work to uh, a low-budget um, film production company called Vertigo in London. Yep. And they, they were like, great, let's do it. Let's make a film. And I didn't believe them at all. And they said, they could tell I didn't believe them. And they said, look, we promise you we're going to do this. Just write down any date you want when you want to start filming. And I promise you'll be filming on that date. And so I thought, I run out of money in three months, I'll write three months from now. Yeah. And so I wrote down this date in September, and, and they stuck to it. And we ended up, we were shooting Monsters, which was the low-budget film, in the middle of Mexico three months later. And but at that point, what did you know? Do you know that it was going to be set in, did you have the story? No. You didn't, it, so <laughs> it was. money would stretch further in Mexico at the time, did it feel? 
It was, I, I think the pitch... And if you don't know Monsters, it's about uh, America build a 100-foot wall <laughs> to keep out some unlikely uh, visitors. Uh, what did you know? <laughs> um, we are in a legal... I can't speak about this because we're in a legal battle with Trump right now, uh, trying to sue him for plagiarism. Yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah. The, yeah, no, it was like... There's the, only seven stories, I suppose. There's only seven stories, real. <laughs> Seven-story high walls. Yeah. I thought it's not that high. You can build it. could go eight stories. The, um, yeah, we, we ended up... Uh, it wasn't really an idea. It wasn't like, hey, I want to make this story about this couple who end up going across on a road trip type movie. It was more like, I think you can make something at home now that looks like it costs way more than it did and I think you can film it on these new cameras and lenses so it looks like film, but it's really video. Therefore, for, I mean, you could do the maths. Like, the short that we did was done in two days. I think, I, I don't know what I spent on it, but let's say I spent 100 quid on it. Um, and that was five minutes. So you could say, look, extrapolate this out for a 90-minute film. It's going to cost very little, and it can at least look like this. And, the, and so we didn't have an idea. And they said, I, to be honest, I went away and I said I wanted it to be a monster movie. So I went away and I pitched, I came back with this story idea and I pitched it to them and they said, no, because it was in, I had it about soldiers. And they said, no, we don't, soldiers, too expensive. Think of something else. So I then went away, I came back with this story about an orphan and them trying to get this kid whose family had been killed having to come back to America with his next of kin. No, I don't film with kids, it's a nightmare. So I then went away. They said, why don't you just do a man and a woman? And I said, well, because whatever we do, it'll be a love story. And, and it's a monster movie, and it's hard. To, I don't know how you do a love story in a monster movie. It's like the two don't go together. They were like, well, just have a think about it. And so I went away and watched, watched all the classic love stories like um, African Queen and uh, Brief Encounter, Lost in Translation and things like this, and made note of all the beats in those stories and when they happen, and weirdly, they're all the same. Mm. Like, like, if you write down, to be honest, if, if you ever write down like, what happens in Brief Encounter and what happens in Lost in Translation, it's pretty similar. Um, and Really? Yeah, because it's like, because the most, the most heartbreaking moment in both of those films is the missed connection at the end. Yes. Like this feeling of like, I desperately want to tell you how I feel, and I can't because there are other people here, and it's not going to happen. Then there's like, and then there's a panic and you think, oh my God, they missed each other. And then there's that last little reprise where they finally come and say it. And so that, we, like in Monsters, it has that as well. Like they should, there's this moment at the end where they're supposed to say how they feel about each other and neither one can quite do it. And then the creatures come, it's very weird. And the creatures come and have sex. <laughs> in a petrol station? Yes. Yeah. We've, We've all done it. We've all been there. <laughs> no Ginsters pasties. <laughs> and but, uh, yeah. But, but that uh, brief encounter, I love the fact that it's brief encounter, lost in translation, monsters, because when I think of your work, it, it is grounded. I mean, the characters feel very real. You know, those, their, their experiences together feel very real, and the sort of the monster, sort of, the monster film sort of supports this sort of very uh, strong relationship drama that sort of unfolds in a sort of very real and thrilling way. Is that conscious to sort of ground the story in a um, in 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 a, in a in a more sort of tangible setting, so that that gives more weight to the to the more 
extreme sides of it, like the monsters? Is that it, it was just out of necessity, really, because I didn't have actors, and I had two actors in the film, but I didn't have access to like loads of extras and things. And for a long time, when I was thinking, okay, going to try and make a film, but I've got no money, how am I going to do it? I used to try and, like, as part of your job doing visual effects is you're usually sticking things over footage. And, and so you can't help it, becomes part of your daily world is as people talk to you, as anything's in front of you, you start in your brain just sticking stuff on top, going, oh, imagine a little robot there, or a little explosion, whatever it is. And you just do it all the time. And I did it on holiday once um, with these fishermen who were just catching a f something in a net, or they were pulling the net in. Let's call it a fish. Yeah. <laughs> and they were, pulling, they were pulling this thing in. And they were arguing with each other and sort of joking. And in my head, I thought, OK. And for whatever reason, I thought, imagine there was like this like, giant like, tentacle thing and they're pulling it in. And they, were, they didn't see it, because obviously, yeah. and they were just having a mundane conversation. And I thought, fuck, this is really interesting. Like, imagine a world where these creatures are there, but it's everyday life for everyone. Like, it's the bit at, at the end of a movie. Like, normally, you know, Godzilla destroys a city or something, and then the, the credits roll, right? It's a bad example. But, <laughs> um, and I was like, it, it, what, if, what, what happens after that? Who cleans that up? And like the start of Monsters for Ages was a cleanup, and it kind of is, where you know the mundanity of ha having to like re, like you know the wreckage of a building, and there's been a creature has attacked something, and then life going on, and and it was really easy to shoot that because life really was just going on, and uh, we were sticking things in, and, and so. About that scene with the, uh, the the guides was sort of you first realize before they show them the aliens on the tree trunks where they're sort of saying, well, we're happy to live with them and they don't cause us any harm. And it's, it's beautifully played and shot and you sort he, of feel like you're there. So that, that's just a normal guy. He's not an actor. And what we did is we got them to talk about, uh, we, we, we sat around a campfire and we ended up saying, we got the actors to ask them, have you ever seen a UFO? And like one guy was like, yeah, I saw one. And he's saying it in Spanish, but he's basically saying, oh, I saw a UFO. And then he starts explaining it. Have you ever seen a ghost? What was it like when the Mexican earthquake happened? You know, all these sort of things. And they all came out with different stories to do with real things. And then in the edit, we changed the words to be uh, about monsters. So, so you're forging a story as you go. Yeah, so they were like, <coughs> you know, and we did say whilst we were still there, because obviously we knew we couldn't get these guys back to do ADR, we ended up talking about monsters and getting them to pretend. But it was not good compared to what, when they were talking about real experiences. That was like, it was very realistic. Um, so the idea of like problem solving, does that excite you in the process where you think, how do I either get a story out of this? How do I turn this opportunity to make a film? How do I solve it? Is that, because I remember I, I saw an interview where you'd worked out how to move the tentacles, which was quite, creative how you, you work that out, is that right? Where, how to make them move more realistically? Yeah, yeah I mean, it was this, this software, like it's off the shelf software that you can learn and buy. But you didn't use it in the in No, it was, way. they didn't have a tentacle plugin, um, <laughs> but they had, a, they had a rope plugin, and rope, you give it one point and another point, and then as you move these two points, the rope will automatically just do its thing. But there were settings within it, and one of the settings was gravity, and if you took gravity to zero, the rope would do this, you know, like it was in space. And so that's what moved all the tentacles. So I wasn't very good at animating. I didn't, I just moved the points. 
and then then the, the computer would work out all the the, the tentacle movement. Um, and so that was just like trial and error. It's more like I think for a lot of these things, it's like trying to picture what you want and then just reverse engineering like how do I get that with the minimum effort because um, I'm lazy. And so it's it's yeah. Yeah, writing, directing, producing, doing the special effects. It's so lazy, so lazy. It does come from laziness, though. It's like, I, I, you know, because it means you don't have to try and talk people into giving, you know, to doing things for you, and so it's sort of easier just to do them sometimes. Okay. I don't buy it, but no, <laughs> whatever, whatever gets you through the night is all right. <laughs> the, uh, because Monsters happens, and it has this amazing reaction. And then what's the journey like from between that and your next movie? Yeah, we showed it at a, well, we basically couldn't get it into any festivals. We, we entered, Sundance said no, Berlin said no, and uh, South by Southwest was like our last hope. And we sent them a copy. We, you have to apply before you finish the film because, and so we sent them a copy that just had text. So it just said, um, creatures attack or whatever, you know, just on the screen in text. And they, whatever reason, they, they accepted it. And, and then when we got there, the guy who ran the festival met us um, off the plane. And he was like, so did you, uh, like he wanted to check. He was like, did you replace the text? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> and I was like, like British sarcasm. I was like, um, oh, yeah, definitely. It's a way better font now. <laughs> um, it's like. Chrome, it's sort of embossed. <laughs> yeah. And you could see him like, are you fucking with me? <laughs> like, and, and, uh, and so we showed this. We were, OK, so our world premiere was half the size of this screen, as in it was probably this many seats, and it was probably this many people. And uh, halfway through showing it, we had it on a tape, and the tape broke. And uh, I remember it being 10 minutes before the tape started again. I was told it was four seconds, but my, my whole world collapsed at that point. And, and then ended up, um, you go up on stage, you do a little Q&A, you talk about it, it ends. One guy would give me his card and go, you know, I'm a producer, um, I'd love to work with you. And I was like, oh, wow, fuck, producer, this is great. And I was like, oh, great, that would be great. And someone else was there, and they said hello, and I'll you know, speak to you tomorrow. And I was like, great. And then it ends. And to be honest, it was the most anticlimactic thing in the world. Because like all your life, you wanted to make films, and you finally get your world premiere, a film you've made. And then 10 seconds later, it's over. And nothing magical happens. I don't know what I was expecting. I was kind of expecting like unicorns to come, <laughs> and there'd be like a rainbow. And, and, and it doesn't. It just the night ends, and you go back in the car. And then I got in the car, and that producer was next to me in the car. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, and, and, and I was like, and he explained. He goes, oh, no, I'm a, a friend of your actors. I'm just. I'm sleeping on their, their couch tonight. And I realized he wasn't a producer at all. He was... He just had a card. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, no, there's not even a producer <laughs> wants to work with me. And, and then the next day, this guy turns up. I was doing an interview for a website that no one ever reads. And this guy turns up, and he goes, um, can I talk to you? And I was like, sure. And he, I recognized him from the night before. And, and he said, can we just sit over here? And we did. And he ends up going... Um, I'm an agent in Hollywood, and I'd like to, it was a longer conversation this, but I'd like to represent you. I was like, oh my god. And, um, and he said, uh, and I was like, yeah, 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 absolutely. And he said, well, don't you want to know who I represent? Because I only represent directors. And I was like, sure. And he said, uh, 
Quentin Tarantino, Tim Burton, like John Woo, Wes Craven. And he only had like this Bunch group. Bunch of nobodies. Yeah. <laughs> and I was a bit like, you, yeah. So I was like, mm -hmm. and you want to, what? And, um, and from that point on, everything that happened then, from then on, I was sort of, it wasn't anything to do with me. Do you know what I mean? It was them. Like, they were very good. They know the industry. And, and I've seen it play out with other filmmakers um, where what happens, and it's, it's, like a, it's like a common thing. Like, you go to Hollywood, or they, they, you go to LA, and what they do is they show your film, and they have screening rooms at the agencies, and they invite people from the industry, like producers and stuff. Producers won't come. They don't care. They send their assistants, their assistants watch it. If it's any good, they go back to the office and they say, yeah, it's pretty good, you know, you should watch it. They have another screening where the producers turn up. Yes, yeah, true. And then the producers watch it. And I was invited to go to the second screening because they said, don't come to the first one, it'll just be assistants. And so I, I, I flew over to do, go to the second one so I could just say hello and introduce it. And the goal was like, then you would go, then hopefully you'll get some meetings, you can go meet some people. And, and, and then I, the way it worked out, I ended up going to the third screening, and I get in there, and as I'm talking, and it's even it's like a quarter of this, and I'm sort of going, oh, yeah, my name's Gareth from England, and made this film very cheap, and la, la, la. And as I'm saying it, I'm looking, it's like Harvey Weinstein is sitting there, and I keep talking, there's Quentin Tarantino's there. And you know, you're going, what the hell is going on? Yeah, yeah. And I got really nervous, and we ended up, going for a drink across the road whilst they were watching it. And then they say, oh, do you want to go back and watch CDN? So I went up and snuck into the projection room and I saw Harvey Weinstein get up and leave. And as he left, he punched the wall and was swearing. And I was like, what the, what's going on? Cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and he was like, what's, what's the matter? What's the matter? And then he turned around, he came back to the projection room. Someone must have told him I was in there. And he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I've got to leave. I really wanted to see the end. And I have, oh. And, he, and, he, and he's like, I, I'm going to see it tomorrow. And I was thinking, you're not going to see it tomorrow. They won't give a copy to anyone. Like, I, in my head, this is what was going on. <laughs> but I, I couldn't see it. I didn't have a copy. And then, but I didn't say that. I was just like, oh, cool, cool. And I was thinking, he doesn't want to see it. He's, he's just leaving. And then, and then Tarantino, at the end, came up to me. And I, I, I saw Reservoir Dogs at the cinema seven times. I love him. And he... I don't, he like came up and I don't know what he said to me, but all I heard was like, like, wah, 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 like wah, Charlie wah, Brown. Wah, wah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he left, and and everyone came straight up afterwards and went, what did he say? What did he say? And I go, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> like I don't know what he said to this day. I don't know what he said. He could have said it was rubbish, but well done for trying. <laughs> I, and then and then I ended up doing for a week. I ended up I had a, in two weeks. I met a hundred people. And I didn't know what normal was. And so I, on my first meeting, you know, we're just making chit chat. You go, basically go to all the different studios, all the different production companies. And I'd sit there and this guy went, this, the first guy that met me went like, so what am I like number 53 on your list? You know what I mean like this? <laughs> and I went, no, you're number one. I have not done any yet. And he went, oh, and he got really excited about it and went, let me tell you how it works. And then he, he basically laid out, he goes, this happens, so what you'll do, you'll meet like, and he was right, you meet about 100 people and, and the majority don't give a shit, you know, and, and they're, they're just doing it for whatever reason. And it's, and it's embarrassing because you sit there in these offices and there's like someone high up and powerful and then there's their assistant. Yeah. And you can tell the assistant saw the film and they're chatting to you, but the high up person is just there on their Blackberry 
like this going. You're totally uh, excited. Uh -huh. You're completely excited about uh -huh. the excitement. That's great. That's great. Mm -hmm. And the assistant's like embarrassed, like kind of going, please, please ignore them. I know, I know what's going on here. And they're trying to give you eye contact. And, and I felt like, that. oh, this is such a waste of time. And, but I went to legendary um, pictures uh, who did things like, they worked with Warner Brothers and they did things like The Dark Knight and Inception and stuff. And sat down in there and that meeting went really well. And they, I ended up pitching a film to them I wanted to make. Um, and they were like, you're gonna make all, all your films with us, kid, you know? And you don't have to go to any more meetings. And I started crying. I was like, it was like, yeah. do you mean that? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like this was, and I was really embarrassed. And I said, I'm really sorry. I was like, but um, all my life I've waited for a moment like this where someone like in your position would say something like that. And, and I left thinking, is that a lie or is this going to happen? Like, I didn't, I didn't know. And the way things worked out is had three really good, out of all those different meetings, three were really good. Legendary was one of them. And, and ended up going with a different company because of the terms and things. And so I thought, oh, no, I've burnt that bridge with Legendary. And they were really sweet to me and really nice. And I felt really guilty about it. And then about, I came back to England and started working on the film I wanted to do. And then I got a random phone call from the guy who ran Legendary, and he said, and it was kind of like, I think, an excuse to call, because it was about nothing, and I didn't quite understand why he was calling. And then right at the end of the phone call, he goes, oh, by the way, if we had this really big film that was up your street, would you, you, know, would you do a really big movie? And I didn't know what he meant, and I went, sure, it depends what it is, but yeah, sure. And then a few days go by, and I get an email saying, Gareth, call this number now. And so I go home and I call this number and it was my agents and they said, sit down. Um, so we just had a call from Legendary and they were in wondering if you'd be interested in directing Godzilla. Oh, and I was amazing. like, really? And then I thought, okay, maybe I'm one of 50 people they're talking to, but it wasn't. And, and it kind of, it, it all went from there really. It was like, I don't know why they, you have to ask them, but it happened. <laughs> Well, you know, it's, you don't need to, you can continually ask yourself why. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, the whole story with Olivier, isn't it, where um, uh, he was trashing his dressing room because he was brilliant one night and someone said to him, you were brilliant. He goes, I know, I just don't know why, you know. <laughs> I think there's something about the, the why is fine, but clearly everything was working up to that moment, you know, from your... So trials and tribulation, working in the movie and then getting there, it, it doesn't happen to anyone. I'm not just blowing smoke here. I, it, it's clearly you were the right person for that. Did Godzilla mean anything to you? Was it, was, I mean, apart from, well, that's the big... Giant lizard. Giant lizard, but, but yeah, but was it like, have you always, you know, is that where you wanted to... Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like Star Wars. You know, Star Wars, I watched it, I don't know how many times. I, I reckon at over 100 for sure. Um, Godzilla was like something I'd got interested in through my light, you know, love of science fiction and things like this yeah. and fantasy. Um, it was more like, I, you hear all these horror stories about people like me who go to Hollywood and get destroyed. And I was like, am I gonna be one of those guys? And naively you think to yourself, oh, that won't happen to me because I'll, you know, do whatever it, you need to do to avoid that. And then the reality is you realize there's a lot of things you can't avoid. And 
And so it was, it was an amazing experience, um, but it was the hardest thing up to that point that I'd ever done. And uh, the train set just got huge kind of thing. Yeah, and it was, it was like, the way we made monsters was very organic and we listened to the film and it told us what it wanted to be. Um, whereas making a Hollywood film is a bit more like a dictatorship where you have to, you, you decide shots sometimes six months ahead of filming. You know what I mean? Like everything's planned and very carefully worked out. And it didn't really fit with the style that I had developed in monsters and stuff. And it was always the style I thought I was going to do. Like, I always, you know, you learn about Spielberg and people, and they storyboard everything, and they go, you know, and they, they turn up, and they know exactly what they're doing every day. So I thought, okay, it'll be like that, and I'll just plan it all. But I think there's a limit sometimes then to, like, how, like, uh, naturalistic and soulful and things like this, things can be. And so... Yeah, because there's a phrase I've read about you uh, that you've used quite often is finding the beauty in it. You know, you've reference it to a couple of your films. What, what do you mean by that, by finding the beauty in the scene? Find it? I, mean, I mean probably more literally like with the camera, but it's like, uh, you can, okay, so there's like two ways of filming. There's like the, the dictatorship version, right, which is, this is the shot, right. okay, you're gonna sit there and you're gonna maybe be like this and you're gonna say this, and then the DOP will light it so that looks nice and great, you got that. Then the other way of working, which I think can lead to better results sometimes, is you chuck the ingredients in front of the camera and the light and whatever it is you do, and then you find the beauty in it. So you go, so therefore the actor can do whatever they want. They can, if they don't want to sit down, they end up over there. They end up doing whatever they want to do. And there's something very natural about it. And then it's my job or whoever's job to find the good version of that, like run around with the camera and go, okay, that looks really nice and it's real, and they feel really comfortable. It feels very naturalistic. It's very hard to work like that on a big film. And on Rogue One, to bring it to Star Wars, um, uh, Greg Fraser was the DOP, and I was talking to a lot of, like you get to talk to a lot of really, really talented people when you make a film like Star Wars. And, and I was speaking to DOPs, and every single person I spoke to, I was like, I had this little spiel about, I don't want to make a film where you have to put the marks down and then, you know what I mean, and we have to dictate exactly what everything is, and the actor has to do exactly what I say. I want them, I want it to feel more organic. I want to find it. The actors to own the moment. Yeah, and, and, and things can happen in opportunities. Things that you wouldn't have planned, like, can, can, can unfold. And... Because and it's right, you built a 360 set in, yeah. in Jeddah, isn't that right? It was with Rogue One. Yeah, and, and we, so we did things like we would shoot yeah, we, so we had this, all the environments, we tried to make 360 degrees, and Greg, who was the DOP, when I met with him, we um, had my little spiel, which is, I don't want to do this, I don't want to, and, and before I even began, when I first sat down, he said, look, can I, can I say something first? And I was like, sure. And he, and he basically did my spiel back to me, and he said, I've done a lot of independent films, I've done some big films, and I'm really not interested in doing a film where there's marks hey, and there's members, a, yeah. yeah yeah and it was like and he was like you had me at hello you know <laughs> and, and 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 so we tried our damnedest and it's as much as we could to be like that and and to be opportunistic 
you know, and you have, it's a massive movie, so you can't fully do it at all. But, the, but for instance, there was 360-degree sets where we would warn the crew, like, we are going to just move the camera anywhere, so please don't be in view. Everybody, please get back. And I think people hear that initially and go, yeah, yeah, you know, but you won't do that. And, and so suddenly, like, Felicity or someone just walks over here, and we just turn around, and, and you see these 10 crew members just run. Spit out a donut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they, they just ran for the cover. Step ladder. Yeah. Right and, the way. and then the next day, we go back, and, you know, there's more stuff, and, and the same thing happens again. I was operating some of it. And Felicity goes over here, and I'm doing it thinking, there's all those working crew members over here, here we go. And as I come round, none of them move. They all stay there, and they're all wearing Star Wars outfits. Amazing. And they've all got like these like Jedi robe type stuff on, and, and, and they were like, it was like, okay, clever. Yeah, like, yeah. And so, and I think secretly they all wanted to be in the film. <laughs> but, so there was, you know, there was lots of, we tried to make it organic, it's hard doing but a big thing like that. Characters really stand out in both Godzilla and Rogue One. I mean, what was that, the transition to sort of, I mean, just with those two films alone, you, you directed Juliet Binoche to Felicity to Diego Luna, you know, incredible array of international talent. How was that sort of, how was that as a director, that transition to sort of working with actors and... Yeah, I mean, you know better than me, but it's like... Not necessarily. <laughs> it's, uh, as a again, you know, you grow up watching films, you don't grow up hanging out with actors, or I didn't, and, and so you do sort of think, how do you do that? Like, what do you say to people? Mm. And, and, and what I, I mean, I did a bit of television, and I wouldn't say I, I did anything any good, but Monsters was really a massive learning experience, because... With those two actors, they had to improvise their way, Scoot and Whitney, had to improvise their way through the entire movie. And there was bits of dialogue that were worked out, but, um, but largely a scene, it'd be like, okay, this is what the scene's about. Maybe you say this, maybe you say that, or you'd say whatever you want. And, and then we would go for it. And what I found, because they would then go, hang on, we need to talk about what, and we'd have long conversations now and again. And all those conversations were like, it was like, Evil Knievel or something, and, and the scene was the gap where they were going to jump, and what they wanted was a ramp. Yep. And so you end up going, why am I doing this? What am I trying to achieve? Where have I been? Like, they just wanted that trajectory in, but they didn't want what worked really well is not telling them what to do. Like, don't, yeah. don't try and fill this bit. Like, let them do whatever feels right, but give them all the details so that Context they, they can come in. Yeah. And that worked the best. And so, I, I, so with the other actors, I, I'm, I'm no good at it. I don't, you know, I don't know what other directors do, but... That's the difficulty with directors, isn't it? Because yeah. directors don't work with other directors, so you only know mostly your own process. And you always think, like, to me, I thought it was like, you partly wonder if it's like horse whispering, like, you know, like that, that like you feel like these directors lean in and say something, and they, like, are they saying, like, Mummy's gone, you want to cry. Like this. And they leave, yeah. and this amazing performance happens, yeah. and you're like going, what did they say? What was so good about, like, what did they say? Yeah. And, and, and it's like there's no, I don't know what you say to actors other than try and give them, like, try your damnedest not to puppeteer them, like, try not to tell them what to do, literally, but try and tell them why they might want to do it, you know what I mean? And 
it's, I don't know. I, I mean, the, the key, to be honest, is you get really good actors, and then you shut up. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but that, yeah, maybe. So we, the, the, I, I didn't know the other week that, that that happened to me. I was, I was working on a film, and uh, it was opposite Michael Shannon, and then we all went, and the director did the horse whisperer thing, and then later on I to said, you? no, to him. I said, uh, I said, what did he whisper? He said, he said, you're a prick. <laughs> <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah. Did he really say that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But in terms of the scene, but it was, it's quite funny. You think, what are the golden nuggets? And you go, yeah. it's actually as thing as that. But the uh, Star Wars, so that conversation, that, that you're going to do Rogue One, I mean, how, how long does that sort of sink in? How long do you have to prepare? I mean, how much involvement do you have before you start making that movie? Um. I, I mean, I, I, it's, when it was signed and sealed um, the week Godzilla came out, so it was pretty much like, okay, get on a plane and go, go to San Francisco. Wow. So I didn't really get much of a break, and then, and then we had six months um, of pre-production, uh, and we didn't have a screenplay. We didn't. John Knoll, who was the visual effects supervisor, he had written. And I forget how long it was, but you know, two pages of like, here's an idea for a film. And it evolved a lot since then, but it was the basic concept of what ended up in, you know, in the movie. And, and so we had that. Um, but you know, with all these big films, the way it works is there's a release date, boom, mm -hmm. and there's not always a screenplay. And that's, that's where all the pressure begins and and so yeah it's like trying to have everybody find the movie in you know before you start filming you know or before it's released <laughs> is is the trick it's not huge different to monsters you know? that's what i thought and yeah. i thought to myself because on godzilla we didn't have a screenplay when i started and we still didn't you know whilst we were leading up to in pre-production and I thought, oh, don't worry about it. You know, you didn't, even, you didn't never had a screenplay with monsters, so you'll be all right. You'll be fine. And it's not the same because I can't just make shit up, and and not and not have a different opinion from lots of people more important than me. And so it was like, it was. Do you feel the pressure? Go with with. I always am amazed with people like yourself making movies of that scale, to sort of have that vision to be in control of the set, to know exactly what you need from not only the day, but the entire shoot. Do you, does that? It's, it's like a marathon and, and there's like, I don't know how many decisions you have to make when you make a film, you know, there's thousands, but it's like, if you think about how much further you've got, it's yeah. too much, like you, you'll have a nervous breakdown. And so you have to just think about the moment and what you've got to do right now and not worry about the other stuff. And so it gets to the point of like, just think about this shot we're doing right now and that you've probably got 10 minutes until you have to move on to the next one and try and make this shot really good. And so you just go from moment to moment to some extent. And the, I, the pressure is definitely there. My, the pressure I feel the most is making a crap film. And you, you really don't wanna make a crap film because, um, like something they never tell you at film school, because it's a high class problem, is that if you make a film and it gets into festivals, like 
it's really weird that the psychology of people is like films like this collective dream that you sort of had on their behalf and sometimes you got it wrong and it wasn't what they were thinking and they'll tell you that mm. and like obviously the internet's full of those sort of comments but like people come up to you and will tell you what's crap about your movie and what didn't work and it's kind of heartbreaking when it first starts happening because you're kind of not used to it you know what I mean and it's like it's this really personal thing that you bared your soul with and then people I didn't like this and that but it didn't work and why did you do that and and so it's like, that's the fear is like, especially with m beloved franchises like Godzilla and Star Wars, you know, uh, my, the whole goal of the entire film was please, 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 let's not make a film that everyone hates. And, and, and I spend the rest of my life having people tell me how I screwed up their childhood. You know? <laughs> and so, so that I, I would have given, I would literally have given my right arm to have not done that. So you're thinking of the fans, or you think the audience, or you're thinking of the experience that you want them to have when they see the film? I'm thinking of myself, because I, I'm a massive fan, and obviously I can't ever, you can't ever see your own film the way other people see it. Yeah. But I, I just didn't want to secretly hate it. Like, if someone else comes up to you and says it's really good, if you don't like it, like, you're never convinced, do you know what I mean? If you think, yeah. no. And to be honest, the out of everybody, the person I most was worried about was George Lucas. And uh, I was, my, my fear was that he wouldn't like the film, you know. So we, George had retired pretty much. You know I mean, he, he was, so we, we were making the movie and uh, to take the pressure off ourselves because there's a lot of pressure. Ryan Johnson, who's doing episode eight, um, he was working whilst we were working. They were in development whilst we were filming and stuff. He was in Pinewood. And, and I would joke with him that his benchmark, because he's making the second in the trilogy, was Empire Strikes Back. And so it's like, it's all right, Ryan. You just have to be better than Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. And as the first Star Wars standalone, we had to be better than um, Caravan of Courage and Ewok Adventure. <laughs> and so... Yeah. So as a joke, I, I bought a giant Ewok adventure poster and it was in my office. It was like the main poster in my office was an Ewok adventure. On the other wall was the Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> and, and I totally forgot about it. They were there for like a year. And then the pressure is on. And then one day, um, George Lucas came to visit out the blue. <laughs> and he, and he's like, oh, hi. And he comes in, and I'm shitting myself. And he comes in that room. And it's only when he walked in the room, I suddenly remember we got Ewok Adventure and the Holiday Special. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. I was desperately trying to keep his eye so he wasn't looking at the walls and like, doing silly things with my hands so that he wouldn't, he wouldn't notice. And it was, uh, yeah, it was. And what did he say? What did he, what's his, was his opinion? Well, we, we didn't know. So the whole time. Like, he, he was really sweet, really funny, really nice guy, amazing. He's God, right? And he, <laughs> and he, he came, and it, and it was one of the best things and weirdest things you could ever do. And then, and that was it. That was just during pre-production. And then the next time, well, I haven't seen him since then, but we heard from him. He, we were trying to show him the film, and we didn't know when he could see it. And we wanted him to see it, obviously, before it got released, you know. And uh, he's a very busy guy, so we, it was just this open invitation. We didn't know when it was going to happen. And I was sitting in a, in, a, in a review or a kind of, there was a sort of meeting that was going on in ILM. 
And in, in San Francisco, where ILM is based, there's no cell reception, like it's rubbish. Like you basically, as you leave the building, you get your phone beeps and you've got a message. And, and it's, some people get a mess, you know, some people get cell reception, some people don't. And we're just sitting there and this guy uh, just nudged me and showed me his phone. And I just look at it and it was a, it was a text. And it was off John Knoll, who's the visual effects supervisor. Um, and it said, I've just spoken to George Lucas and he loved the movie. And I was like, what? You know what I mean? And it was like, what? And again, hold back the tears, you know what I mean? It was like, and then Kathy Kennedy comes in um, and she was delayed because he had called her. And so she comes in and she's like, um, I've got some really good news, everyone. And he'd seen it and he was, he was really happy. And I, at that point, was like, I don't care what anyone else thinks now. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I was like, I'll trade, no offense, but I'll trade the whole world for George, you know what I mean? In terms of like, who, who likes it, doesn't like it sort of thing. Like, it felt like, we, you know, vindication or something, but. Amazing. Like, but do you feel like with Rogue One, you had a bit of creativity? Because I, I love the fact that Caravan of Courage and BMX Bandits has had a, 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 a shout out today. <laughs> and, you know, both films I haven't revisited since <laughs> uh, the 80s. But the, um, like the, the character development, the, the approach to it, if you're saying that you felt like there was a bit of pressure off, how much involvement did you have to develop those characters? I suppose in, in a way that we hadn't seen in other Star Wars movies before. Well, the characters, like, the right, there was, like, various writers were on the film, and, the, you know, everyone's got... Do they pitch you ideas? And... No, it was but... like, it's very hard to look back on it and keep score of who came up with what, when. Right. Like, it's not, it's like a, everyone's saying all sorts of things, you know, in meetings and things, and you can't remember. Everyone probably thinks, well, I said that, you know what I mean? Um, but um, certain characters, so John Knoll, you know, his thing was, had Jin in it. I always thought that was his name, John and Jin. Like, I thought that's why he did it. Um, and, and then all the other things came over time, and... and the big breakthrough, which happened on with Gary, who was Gary Witter, who's who's British as well, and he he um great writer. Yeah, and he it, when we were chatting about it, and again, I don't remember, and it doesn't really matter who, who came up with what, but but the thing that really clicked for us was this idea that because there was a point, I don't know if if you know the movie, but the the mother. There's a mother and father. They're here for the BMX bandits. <laughs> yes, that's it. Yeah. It's like BMX bandits. <laughs> it's um, the, the mother and father. There was a, in the prologue, the very first scene in the film. It was gonna. There was a version once where it was gonna be, or like as in we were talked about. It, it wasn't yeah. like we literally went and did this, where the mother was a Jedi, and and they were killing all the Jedi, and it was like the arrival of the bad guys who come to kill the mother, the Jedi, and it was all and it was nice and it was written, really well where they turn up and you don't know them as a Jedi, you know what I mean? And you assume that they've come for the dad and all this sort of stuff, and then they go, where is she? You know what I mean? Like, sort of thing. And, and it all unfolds from there. And then the problem was, um, it would mean, therefore mean that entire movie, everyone would be thinking, well, is, is Jin a Jedi? You know what I mean? And you can't really escape that. And then it became, and we didn't know at the time what episode seven was going to fully be like, because mm -hmm. um, this was before it came out, and and it was all very secretive and stuff. And so um, we ended up scrapping that idea. But the thing that worked really well was when I'd done, for the BBC, I'd done a documentary about Hiroshima. 
And so you learn a lot about Robert Oppenheimer. And when I got to do Godzilla, we used Oppenheimer's quote, I am death, I've become death, destroyer of worlds, as a trailer, teaser trailer um, that got showed at Comic-Con. And so Oppenheimer was floating around in my head a lot. And so when it came to this super weapon metaphor of the Death Star, which is really like nuclear bomb, right? Um, Oppenheimer, like who's Oppenheimer, right? Mm. Who's the Oppenheimer? Especially because we couldn't have Tarkin necessarily the way we wanted. Um, we wanted to create characters that, so it felt like the designer of the Death Star was someone that should be in our movie or could be in our movie. And then he became the dad, and, and that felt right. And then you suddenly get the idea, well, the whole thing of the floor and the, you know, that you could, you know, instead of it being like this silly thing that they fire and, and there's this exhaust port. You could um, solve the problem. Yeah, you could kind of cure that. Yeah. And so then it kind of like, that all started making sense and feeling really good. And then the idea, like, you can't have the mother be a Jedi and the father, you know, so it, like the mother kind of took a back seat a little bit. Um, and... And yeah, and so the, 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 it was something that honestly, probably more than most films, uh, it was being written and rewritten and developed and improved until the, like the last couple of months of the, before the release. It wasn't, we did it, it's done, just go film that. It was yeah. just constant, yeah. constantly reworking it. There's stuff. no such thing as a final draft. No. Yeah, yeah, I like that. We're gonna... We're going to have to ask some questions, if that's okay with yeah, you. Yeah. Gareth, thank you. That was a, a really illuminating talk. Um, you've kind of touched on this, but um, I heard an interview recently with Alan Tudyk talking about um, his character in the film and that he actually got to improvise like some of the dialogue and yeah. uh, a few of the characters did that. So um, how does that work when you're in the middle of this huge uh, kind of corporate, you know, uh, machine and sort of trying to like improvise lines and things like that and how you come up with with ideas and things i mean alan alan had a much easier job doing that because he was it was there was no secret that he was kind of the comic relief you know k2 had a lot of uh of the best comedy moments in the film and alan's a brilliant comedian and and so he was given free reign was like whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it just go for it there's his funniest stuff it's not in the film. It can't be in the film. It's too rude. <laughs> he, he did some hilarious stuff where I was crying with laughter. Um, uh, some takes we can't use because I was operating and I'm laughing with the camera. Um, yeah, so he, he, was, he, was, he was given, like, no one would ever question him messing around because it was, like, just... Because it was sort of funnier if the others didn't know what he was about to do as well. Um, uh, with others, it was like what we did is we had... We tried to establish some ground rules early on, and this didn't apply throughout the whole film, but was that we would get what was on the page, and we would do a few, you know, however many takes it took to feel like we had it. And then we would do like, we had different terms for it to try and make everyone understand what we're doing. So we had this thing called indie hour, which is, which is really stupid term, because it wasn't an hour, and there was nothing indie about it. But it was like, it was, it just meant to the crew, now, People are going to do things. We don't know what it is. I'm going to do things. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Everyone's going to just... Stuff's going to happen and just deal with it. Like, don't get all precious about... Jazz hour. Yeah. And so it was like, okay, now... And now, okay, we're just going to do the scene again. We're going to do indie hour. And it'd be like, okay, everyone, indie hour. Just like, i.e., 
and, and we made a deal, which was if something's not in focus, if, some, we, if the thing's in shot, if lights are in the wrong place, whatever it was, no one's going to get told off. <laughs> Don't fret. It's all fine. Like, and so, like, because obviously what happens is people try and, they're trying to do the best job they can, and everyone's trying to protect from things happening. So but sometimes it can trap you where you can't do something because someone's worried it might make them look bad. And so we'd go, look, no one's going to see this. We're not going to put this. We wouldn't put this on the stuff we sent to the studio. And so Indie Hour was never like marked as like a take that people could watch. And it, and it wasn't an hour. It was just like a phrase. Um, cause but early, did you use any of that? Yeah, yeah, this stuff. I mean, not, every, not as much as probably I wanted to, but stuff that's in there. A lot of stuff ended up actually in the trailer that was that kind of thing. Like... This, and it's funny because they, they don't become, iconic's the wrong word because that makes something sound like it's really good, but they become like the, like the, the, the there's a bit with Ben who played Krennic um, and he's got this gun and he's looking down, there's the spherical uh, graphic behind him. And thing like, and that, his even his action figure is that, like, that pose. And that's like Indie Hour, i.e. There's stuff like, you know, the pressing of buttons and stuff, that's all Indie Hour. It's like uh, when they flick the screen and, and because what happens is that thing of, uh, you can say this is the shot, but I... It's got to be alive. Yeah, and it's like you want it to feel as natural as possible. Mm. And, so, and so we had these really nice... Gary, who was the grip, he was brilliant. We got into this habit of putting dance floor down. I don't know, I didn't know any of these terms, uh, you know, until we started doing this stuff. But they put dance floor down, which is basically wood across the ground so that you, the, the, the dolly can go wherever it wants. Because I found that if we had rails, we did have rails, but whenever we really had rails, it would be a very, you'd be stuck doing this shot no matter what happened, and the actors could be doing something different. So we put dance floor down, and it was really good because like, you'd have the monitor, and this is like my favorite thing of all, because making a film handheld and low budget is really good, but it feels, if anything, it feels on the, the side of the spectrum that's cheaper and, mm -hmm. you know, not the cinema I grew up <coughs> loving, mm -hmm. and all those considered more Kubrick style, you know, dolly moves and things are like, like give you goosebumps type stuff. They're very weighted. Yeah, yeah. and so we, was, we were trying to be flexible, but with the dolly, and so we had like, you'd have the monitor like this, and Gary would just watch your finger, and, and he was just ready to go, and he, no one ever knew when it would happen, I didn't know, you're just waiting for a cool moment, and as soon as the actor does something, you go, and you're just feeling like, ooh, you just go like like that, and it just and the camera would just start going. We're working together. And then you'd be like, stop. You know what I mean? And then you'd be like, okay, go that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was like having a little remote control. He would just move it this way. <laughs> and it, I, I loved all that stuff. And, and I, there's it, there's a lot of it that's not in the movie. But even things like Felicity, there's a famous or I say famous, but there's a thing they used a lot in the marketing where the, all these lights light up round her, and it's in a tunnel that. There was a sequence in that tunnel um, that's not really in the film. And as we went to set it up, we were shooting and, and we go, okay, stop, cut, whatever. Okay, we're gonna be further in the tunnel, let's just go down there. Felicity, Felicity starts to walk down there and the guys turn the lights on to get into the tunnel. And I think she forgot something or whatever, she turned around and the lights went boom, boom, boom. And I was like, oh my God, that looks really good. Um, it was like, stop, 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 no one stop. And it was like, okay, um, indie hour. <laughs> It was like this timeout thing you could do. And you go, India, just going to get this shot. And again, people would say, like, what? I, I didn't, like, they'd say, what are you doing that for? And you'd be like, I don't know, it just looks really good. And so we would, got Felicity to turn around as we did these little moves and, and the things lit up. 
And we probably, we said, we were, said look, five minutes, just going to be five minutes. It probably was more like 20. But, but we got these little shots. And then we just bank them and move on and forget about it. And So exciting for the crew to be creatively involved as well. Gary sounds amazing, by the way. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, you know, great. creatively involved in the process that you're making it together, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. It felt, everyone got really close. It was, and everyone loved it. Everyone was like, everyone was probably doing what they're doing for a living because of Star Wars. So I think you get, and people go the extra mile that they, they might not go on another movie, maybe. It's weird because there is a lot of pressure, you know, making these sort of films. And, and I, uh, I, like, episode seven came out, and I don't know what they were expecting us to do at the box office, but then that suddenly makes two billion, and you go, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> the pressure's on now. And we were never expected to do, like, the same kind of money because it was this spin-off thing. But, um, but I think expectations went up a bit. Um, but also, our resources went up a bit. Like, we initially were supposed to have 600 VFX shots in the film, um, which, to put it in perspective, is less than the effect shots in Return of the Jedi. Um, Godzilla had nearly 1,000 visual effect shots in it. And so it's like, how are we going to pull off Star Wars with 600 VFX shots? And in the end, because of the success of the other film, uh, we got 1,700 VFX shots. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, JJ. Yeah. Um, so Is that yeah. what you fight for? I mean, some directors I talk to fight for more uh, shoot days. Some fight for more cameras. Some is there a thing that you you want to have? You don't want to scrimp on. Is it? Is, is it? I mean, yeah. I mean, try and fight. Fight's the wrong word. Okay. Uh, try and beg. <laughs> no, no, but you know, what do you want? Do you don't want to scrimp on? You know, for uh, for me, it was just flexibility and freedom. Like I don't yeah. like when I was working and I did some TV directing, um, which is kind of like having the aspiration of film because we were trying to do these big things, um, but without the resources, mm. we ended up in situations where, like you know, beautiful light would happen over there on a hill. We go, quick, I'll stop. Can we go over there and do this thing real quick? Can we just put this? It's like, no, we can't. The trucks are in the way. It's going to take like an hour to move everything. And it becomes this big event. And you say, well, why can't we just do that? And they say, because you've got too many people helping you. And you say, so what you're saying is, if I had no one helping us, we could do anything we wanted. And they'd be like, yeah. And, and you go, well, surely that's the way to make a film then, right? Like, and if that, that's why we went off and did Monsters the way we did it. And, and so... It was like trying, even though you've got 300 people around you, trying to make it feel like there was only five so that you could do anything at any point. And the assistant director, Toby, um, was brilliant. At, he knew that was my big thing and, and was really, really good at keeping everyone away, the only people that needed to be there sort of thing. And they were there, but they were just out of view. And, and it was... Uh, you could convince yourself sometimes, especially when we're inside the spaceships, because they literally had, we're there on gimbals, and so they would seal them. And so we would shoot for an hour without, it was just me, the sound guy, the focus puller, and then the actors. And we'd be in there for an hour, and it was great, because no one could stop you. And, and you could shoot and film and try things, and then, like, you know, a little bit of improvisation could happen, and no one can do anything about it because you're locked inside. Yeah. It feels like 
even though it's a massive movie, it still feels the spirit of... I think that's the Holy Grail. Like, like uh, there, are mass, there are advantages to doing very low-budget things, like really big advantages, like really big. And then there are advantages to having an insane amount of money and doing a big blockbuster. And, but there are disadvantages for both as well. And, and like if, you had, if you listed all the, the pros and cons of low-budget, mm -hmm. the pros and cons of high-budget is basically just swap them. And, and, and so the Holy Grail feels like having the flexibility of low budget and all the freedom you get of that with the scope and the, the ambition of a high budget film. And, and Rogue One was definitely, after Godzilla, Rogue One was definitely like, let's try and get closer to that. Yeah. And, and I feel like we haven't, no, I haven't done it. But I would love to keep trying. You know what I mean? Like that, that hybrid is really exciting. I think. Oh, it's really exciting. Brian Cranston's a fantastic actor, and he's in Godzilla. And when I saw Godzilla, I thought, "Wow, this is going to be a superb movie with Brian Cranston." So my question is, why did you kill off his character? I mean, I thought he was going to be the main hero of the piece, and and. The, the film main, was called Godzilla. Yeah, and, and, are we, are, and are we losing hope? I mean, when we're showing Star Wars, I mean, it's all about hope. Um, so are we losing hope in showing the goodness of people and showing the dark side too much rather than showing the good side? Yeah, thank you. Um, I guess the first question... Okay, imagine it had been... I think the problem there, and there's... Uh, yeah, what... I, there's no part of me that stands at any time and says, uh, there's no faults in anything I've ever done. And that could well be a big fault that Brian Cranston didn't live through that movie, right? But I, you've got to remember that when it's written and when people, like we're talking about it, it wasn't Brian Cranston. It could have been some actor we shot in Vancouver. It could have been some, some guy from, from Canada. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, would have been, that would have really hurt. <laughs> yeah. It, it, could have just, it could have just been some day player that you know, no one's ever heard of, and no one would have that issue with, if that had happened. We ended up getting really lucky, and Brian Cranston took the part, and he's so damn good, now we're in trouble because he dies. And, and also, you know, Breaking Bad suddenly peaked as well when, when that film was kind of coming out. So, yeah, that... that I, you know, if I went back in time, would, there's so many things I'd do differently, and I don't know if that would be one of them, but it doesn't bother me like it bothers everyone else. But um, what was the other one? Hope. That I think, okay, so in terms of hope and darkness... amazing thing, though, to kill Julia Binoche, they lasted five minutes, didn't she, in the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Terms, but there's something about you go, oh, my God, you're engaged in the story. You really care about these characters, and you care about these actors. And actually, the caring is something that clings to you going through, and you go, well, I have to stay with this story because I feel a sense of loss so early on. So in a way, I kind of like that, that, that element to it, sorry. Yeah, I mean, um, also we wanted to feel, you know, one of the reasons was like, we just wanted people to not be able to know who was gonna live and die through this movie, and maybe, they would, maybe anyone could die, you know. Um, with the hope thing, I guess, I, I feel like, I guess you're talking about Rogue One. Um, I feel like Rogue One is a hopeful film by the end of it. But 
I do think the thing is, is there's a lot of gray characters in that film, i.e. no one's in the box of like, you're good, you're evil. Like what we really enjoyed making the film was no one could be put in a box. Like the, the father's, you know, technically a Nazi, space Nazi, um, but he's a great father, you know what I mean? But he worked for the empire and those two don't add up. Like how can someone doing something so bad, like creating this super weapon, be such a loving dad, you know? And I like all that, that grayness. And I think if you... It's very real though, isn't it? Yeah, and I think personally, if you, if you just, like a binary and, po like, and, and just polarize it too much, it's not true to life. And I don't, you, you wanna sort of go, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not perfect. And when I watch a movie and I see myself on screen, i.e. these imperfect people who have made mistakes, done bad things, whatever it is, and, and then you see that they can change and get better and eventually put right a wrong, like that's, I think that's a better thing to, story to tell than this person was born great, they are great. That's not really, I know it's like typically the role model, but that's kind of saying if you weren't brilliant and you've, and you've not been perfect all your life, um, forget it. You know what I mean? Some people are born great, some achieve greatness, some have greatness thrust upon them, as yeah. you say. And no, I, I, I think it's, it's clear, you know? It's, it's, it's an exciting thing that happens, and it's human nature. I, mean, I always think with the Western, you get the guy who rolls into town, changes town, and leaves town. But what was the story in the town previously? Was he as good, or was he as bad, or was, you know? Yeah. Did he, you know so uh, it's the fact that you focus in on there. I, I, I think it is hopeful. I, 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 you know, because we know it's hopeful, don't we? We know what's coming around the corner with Rogue One. Right, just a uh, quick question about um, Britishness. You know, you, so many people behind and in front of the camera um, in Hollywood seem to love British people. What do you think it is about the Brits, the actors, the directors, you, your writer was British, that, that Hollywood sort of seems to click with? Um, I, was in a, I was in a meeting. This is not really going to answer the question, but I find it interesting. I was in a meeting on Star Wars, and... This guy was in the room, and he, I, I think he's a bit of a genius. Uh, he was a writer, and he didn't, he didn't really work on the film, but he was in, there was this one conversation we had to have, and we had to have it with some very high up people. And uh, he ended up talking about the story and talking about the film, and I was just sitting there going, fucking hell, this guy's really smart. Say something, Gareth, you look like an idiot. And, and I was like, I didn't want to interrupt him because what he was saying was really, really good. And then finally, like, he must have spoke for like 20 minutes and it kind of reached a point and I said something, like made a fool of myself, said something at the end, like, well, I think this, whatever it was. And we left and we got in the car and as we got in the car, he went, he goes, oh man, he goes, I just wish, he goes, he goes I just wish I sounded as clever as you in there. And I was like, what? <laughs> And I was like, what are you on about? He goes, I was ram and he was going, I was just rambling and rambling. And then you just suddenly said something. And it was like, fuck, that sounds so clever. And I was like, it's just the accent. <laughs> it's like, I'm an idiot. And, and like, what I said was stupid. And I do think the accent, <laughs> it's associated with like, you know, academics and intelligence and stuff. I don't know, in Ameri for, from Americans' point of view, somehow this accent reassures people and they think, oh, yeah, they must be clever or very evil. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so I, oh, I'm, I'm not complaining. I'm very lucky that we speak like this. 
It travels well. Yeah. It travels well. Thanks for tonight, guys, by the way. Um, yeah, Gareth, just wondering about camera format. So deciding whether to go from film, IMAX, to Alexa 65, what made you and Greg decide to go on the Alexa? And also, there's a few shots on like B-roll where you're operating the camera. How do you find that balance from jumping on the camera to a pose behind the camera or watching it from the monitor? Um, we went with the, the Alexa 65 because it was the, really the only 65 millimeter digital camera available, i.e. for those who don't care about these things. Is it, it looks like IMAX kind of, it's like a really big sensor. So you get a beautiful narrow depth of field, even on a wide shot. So it, things just look way better on it. And um, we both agreed that that would be the best way to go. It was all Greg's research and doing that. We ended up putting Panavision on an ARRI camera, which I think was the f Panavision lenses on an ARRI camera, which I think was the first time that happened. And they were very good at letting that um, take place. And, and uh, in terms of holding it, when it's opportunistic, like I feel that if you're, if you're the director and you're not holding the camera, and, but it's very opportunistic and it's like, you're, like it gets very frustrating and you, and you feel like that you're not really directing, you know what I mean? You're not really controlling anything, it's someone else. And I totally trust Craig and his, he's, he's an amazing, amazing cinematographer and got an amazing eye. And if he would put the, 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 the camera on his shoulder, I'd be like, fucking great, you know. But he also was orchestrating the lighting. We had these LED lights. So he had this kind of iPad-type system where he can fade up and down all the lights whenever he wants and turn them any color balance and things. And, and so sometimes like, I'd start filming over here. Something would happen, we'd go over here. And initially, when I went over there, it'd be like, oh, it doesn't look, like, it doesn't look as good as there. And then something would, after about a minute later, I'd be like, it looks really nice. <laughs> I remember this one didn't look very good when I looked over here. And he was fading, like whilst during the shot, he's fading things down. He's trying to do it slow enough that you can't tell, but he's fading things down, fading things up. So he's like, the light's changing and sculpting this person. And, and that, yeah, I, it was a really heavy camera, um, but it wasn't, wasn't as heavy as the camera on Monsters. That was really like, came out this far and I had to carry on my shoulder and I've still got a bad back from it. it was, was it a red? Did you shoot in a red on that? I'll end on a, I'll end on a, on a story, you ready? And then we go. Yeah, well that, that question was so sexy, we should uh, the, build on more characters. <laughs> so my, when I was shooting Monsters, it was a really heavy camera, I had a bad back, um, we were in Mexico and I couldn't function anymore. I was taking painkillers every day, trying to stop this thing hurting and they said, oh, I, you need to get it sorted, like you need to get a deep tissue massage sort of thing. And, they, and so they said, oh, um, I said, Where, are there any like places that can do massages? And the woman who ran the hotel said, yeah, yeah, across the road. And I was like, yeah, but I need a, a real proper massage, like, you know, deep tissue, not, not a dodgy one. <laughs> and, and, and she said, You're away yeah. from home, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 over the road. There's a woman that does it, it's great. So I go over the road and I lie down and they're playing this, like Muzak, it's the Beatles, whatever, like elevator music. And it's the first time I've been able to relax the whole shoot. And the big dilemma of the film was, do we kill the main characters or do we let them live? And the producers obviously wanted them to live and I wanted them to die. And I was trying to like play out a way it could work and like picture something that could kind of do both or something. I kept, I kept trying to think, do they live, do they die? What happens, how does it figure out? And I, I get lost in this thought for ages, and I can't figure out which one it is. And, and right at the very end, 
the woman doing the massage, she leant down and whispered in my ear, happy ending. <laughs> and, <laughs> you, you shouldn't clap things like that. <laughs> so she's now an executive producer on the film. Uh, yeah. That's showbiz for you, that's showbiz. <laughs> so what's next for you? A holiday. A holiday? And a happy ending. And a happy ending. <laughs> okay. And, uh, but do you know what you're doing next? Can you say? No, I just want to do, I want to do something that I've sort of written, maybe with other people, but there's a thing that I had uh, in development a long time ago that I really like. Um, maybe I'll do that, but maybe something else. I'd, I'm trying to take the pressure off and just let it all happen and not have deadlines and schedules and... It's been a thrill to talk to you. It's been a thrill to meet you. I think you're a world-class talent. You're oh. crazily humble, and it couldn't happen to a nicer, more talented person. Your Wales is shining <laughs> light. <laughs> We've claimed him. He's ours now. And um, thanks very much for your time. No, thank you. Thank and you. thanks very much for your work, and we can't wait to see what you make next. Oh, it's going to be human. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be fresh. And uh, I'm a big fan, um, as everybody else is here. So... Ladies and gentlemen, Gareth Edwards. Thank you.